I think all else equal, the answer would be, it's going to be exactly as it is now, which is exactly as it has been for the last half million years, probably. Um, that, <coughs> that our social world is small scale. It's really quite intense. Um, it's very supportive on the whole and provides that kind of cocooning for you that allows you to cope with all the you know, exigencies of life, everything that life throws at you. Um, uh, it help, helps you sort of get through that. And that's how it's always been and how it always will be. And it's always depend, always has been, always will be dependent on you investing time in uh, these friends in particular. There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends. And Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs, and I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. Hi, friends. Welcome to Spritzing Hour. Today, we're talking all about our friends, uh, more specifically, the importance of social bonding. We often think of friendships as nice rather than necessary, but we're only beginning to really understand just how central these relationships are to our mental and physical health. Prior to COVID, we were living increasingly disconnected lives, but what will a year plus of social distancing have done for our friendships? Will we pick up where we left off? or will we have lost or forgotten some of our social skills? I, for one, am quite nervous about getting back into uh, social circles. Um, so will socialising be better or will it be harder or will it just be different? Um, and today I'm joined by Professor Robin Dunbar, who's the Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at Oxford University and also the person who uncovered just how many friends we can physically uh, have and should have, otherwise known as Dunbar's number. Professor Dunbar has published many books, articles and white papers on the nature of social bonding in a variety of human and non-human species and really what we can learn about our own social networks and behaviour as a result of this research. So Robin, many thanks for joining us today. A pleasure. Glad <laughs> to be here. Good, thank you. Um, so, so tell me, did you always want to be an evolutionary psychologist when you were growing up? Uh, far from it, actually. Um, of all things, I was most interested in philosophy, and that's probably what I would have done had I gone to anywhere else other than where I did go to university, which is Oxford, because all my other applications were for pure philosophy. And um, I realize uh, now in retrospect that that's such a difficult subject, I would probably now be a rather bad secondhand car salesman in Blackpool or somewhere like that. But luckily Oxford doesn't do psychology on its own. Doing it with psychology is the least bad option. And that converted me from being a humanities person to being a scientist. <laughs> 
remarkably. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a, it, from doing some reading, it's a vast topic, but for, for people maybe that aren't aware of just, you know, the, the, the topic itself or the field of study itself, can you tell us a bit more about what, what it is you, you, you cover in, uh, in evolutionary psychology? So I'm really an evolutionary psychologist, which means I have a foot in two camps, really. One is psychology proper, which tends to focus on the mechanisms of the mind, how the mind works, um, how our social relationships work at just that level. I mean, you know, sort of cause and effect, if you like. Um, Whereas my other foot is very firmly in kind of zoology and an evolutionary biology camp where the questions are much more built around what do these processes or what do these behaviors or traits do for us in terms of allowing us to contribute genes to future generations so the the drivers of evolution if you like and of course these two fields really sit back to back on the opposite sides of the same coin really although they don't regrettably talk to each other very much. But uh, from my point of view, um, the focus of my interest is on the social world. Why are animals in general and humans in particular as social as they are? How do societies work? How do the relationships that build societies work? And, you know, what do they do for us? You know, what, what impact do they have on our future lives? And through that, what impact do they have on our ability to transmit uh, our genes into future generations, which has been the driver uh, in, in, in historical terms of all evolutionary processes. Mm. We kind of interrupt that a little bit <laughs> these days by not having so many children, I suppose, <laughs> but, or maybe not, none at all out of choice. But, um, you know, that's by the by. <laughs> Evolution won't stop for that, I'm afraid. <laughs> no. We'll get around it, and and so so let's talk a little bit about you know what it is that that makes us social so social um, and and potentially you know are we the most social of all the social species? I think the most social, really, uh, of all the mammals and birds, um, has to be the primates as a group. Um, there are other kind of you know, quite intensely social species of mammals like the horses or the dolphins or the elephants, those kind of species. But that level of intensity that you get in, in right the way across the primates um, is rather rare in, in other mammals and, and in the birds as a whole. Um, and and it comes as a result of attempting to solve the problem of how to protect yourself against external threats. That's mainly predators sort of appearing on the horizon and, and grabbing one of you in passing, as it were. And what primates have done is form these very intensely bonded social groups that allow you to kind of persuade predators it's not worth trying, is the answer. Predators look for the easy gambit. They're not prepared to risk sort of being attacked by, you know, sort of large numbers of angry uh, bees or, or, or the equivalent in any other species. They'll try and pick off a load animal and so on. So by grouping together, what price to go and find an e- easier prey? 
But that's actually quite a difficult job because living in tight groups the way they do is extremely stressful. I'm always tempted at this point to say it's all about relationships. They're stressful. Don't we know it? <laughs> um, and it's how to, how to keep your, if you like, friendships or your relationships going despite all these stresses that primates have evolved this really smart um, form of, of sociality. I mean, it's smart in the sense it's based on um, a, a working great computer, i.e. the brain sitting in, in your head, as it were, um, to allow them to play quite a complex game of diplomacy, of, of compromise, such that in the end, what you have in a primate group is a kind of classic uh, implicit social contract where we all kind of compromise on some of our immediate needs in order to not drive other people away. And humans just do this in space. I mean, that, that's sort of the nature of primate sociality. And because we live in much bigger groups and we have much bigger brains, humans just do this kind of on a grander scale than, than any of the monkeys and apes. But we're on the same continuum as them, if you like. We're just further out along this, this um, continuum of social smartness. Hmm. If it's so stressful for us to be in groups, or what, what is the reason why it is primarily so stressful for us to be together and why we needed to evolve certain behaviours in order for us to overcome that inherent stressfulness? What is it about other people that stress us, but also from an evolutionary perspective, we need them? Um. Traditionally, it's always been looked at as kind of ecological competition. You know, so, so there you are um, digging up your nice juicy root and I come bowling in and uh, steal it off you and, uh, and um, uh, you know, climb, climb a high tree and sit up there eating it and you, you, know, you pop up and down and get very cross. Um, and it's those, that's the sort of classic view, but actually it's turning out to be much more that it's the psychological stresses of just bumping into, in effect, bumping into each other in a confined space that's the problem. Is what I sometimes describe as the London commuter problem. You know, eight o'clock in the morning on the underground. It's not fun. Mm. Um, uh, I, I, okay, um, there are lots of other <laughs> kind of issues with um, the underground in the sense that most of the people on the underground, you have no idea who they are, they're strangers. Whereas in a social group, even in your kind of extended social network of family and, and friends, you know everybody and, and, and they know you. But nonetheless, you know, things start to get tetchy and fall apart and somebody forgets somebody's birthday <laughs> and, you know, they get upset about it and, you know, somebody... Uh, does something to one of the cousins and great granny gets annoyed and all these things, you know, that just build up in the social world in which we live. Um, and these psychological stresses, um, not only do they kind of have ramifications for your health uh, and psychological well-being, but they also have really quite dramatic effects on... Um, 
menstrual endocrinology in general. I say menstrual, it hits both sexes. Um, so the, the, the sort of um, whole endocrinolo endocrinological machinery of hormones that sort of start as a, in the brain cascade down through, you know, to the, to the reproductive organs, the ovaries and, uh, and the testes um, to trigger the production uh, 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 and the process of ovulation, obviously in the case of uh, females and sperm production in the case of males. And it can have a so stress blocks that cascade of, 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 of hormones. And you end up in, in, let's say in the case of females with um, uh, and what are called anovulatory uh, menstrual cycles. So perfectly normal menstrual cycle, but ovulation just doesn't happen. So you're, you're infertile. So there's a mammal-wide problem uh, and it's a consequence of the fact that this is kind of a byproduct, really, of the fact that that system exists to protect you from something else, particularly in the case of female mammals, is to protect them from having to both be pregnant and lactate at the same time, because both of those are energetically very expensive. Yeah. Uh, as you know, um, if you're a, a, a lactating mum, you know, you feel unbelievably hungry most of the time. <laughs> and it's because so much of your energy is being <laughs> uh, uh, sort of used to make milk. And, and um, there is this lovely little thing consuming all this milk that you produce like fury. So you're perpetually playing a catch-up game, trying to eat enough to, to, to keep going. Of course, that gets worse and worse as the baby gets bigger. Um, so to try and prevent the kind of overload, the energetic overload, You've had this very, very simple, actually, and very fine-tuned system evolved, which prevents pregnancy and lactation happening together. And it's that same system, unfortunately, then is very susceptible to stress. So it switches off um, very easily. And you can, you know, you can switch uh, um, uh, women's menstrual cycles in and out um, extremely easily just by putting them on heavy. Um, circuit training regimes in the gym, um, uh, literally. I mean, it, almost overnight, it switches the whole system on or off. Um, <clears throat> it's remarkable just from the stress, the physical stress, in this case, of doing all this exercise. But it turns out that psychological and physical stress we experience in the same part of the brain, um, and so psychological stress has the same effect. So it's all those stresses really adding up. Uh, to make social life extremely difficult and, and you're kind of, as a generic mammal, your, your instinct, if you like, is to say, crikey, I'm out of here. This is, this is too much and I can't bear these other people. Um, uh, and that would have the effect of, I mean, it's a perfectly uh, sensible thing to do, but it has the effect of forcing you to live in very, very small groups or even on your own you know, it's a solitary animal, as many of the smaller, you know, uh, mammals do, hedgehogs and, and shrews and things like that. They're pretty much solitary creatures. But what the primates have done has found this way of just deflecting those stresses enough. And it's, it's primarily done by the females forming coalitions, i.e. intense friendships with each other. So they don't have to rush to each other's defense. All they have to do is to keep everybody off their backs just by it being apparent, you know, this one's got a, 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 a mate who's going to come to 
uh, her or his, as the case may be, aid um, if, if you try and steal their lovely root that they've just dug up, right? And so you don't bother. It's just keeping the, the, the competitors off your back enough that it doesn't kind of overwhelm the system. So what friendships are doing in these um, contexts is allowing primates to then live in much bigger groups because at the base of it, they sit cocooned in this tiny little grouping, often you know just uh, four or five individuals um, who effectively buffer them against all these stresses that would otherwise cause the group to kind of disperse and break up. Mm. And it seems that only recently are we starting to really understand the, truly understand the mental and physical benefit of having friendships and what what it can offset when we think about how stressful 21st, 21st century living can be, that actually having a, a core group of friends can be very protective of your physical health, which is quite surprising. Uh, yes, I think that's kind of um, something that's caught the entire medical profession, I might almost say, completely left field within the last decade. The sheer number of studies that are now being published showing that the single most important factor affecting um, your psychological health and psychological well-being, your physical health and, and well-being, your ability to cope with the kind of minor diseases of life like winter colds and things, your ability to, to recover quickly from surgery, even your risk of dying is just the number and quality of close friendships you have. And you know anything else that your friendly neighborhood GP worries about in these contexts, like how much exercise do you do? How overweight are you? <laughs> what medicines are you on? What's the quality of the air uh, that you breathe in, you know, where you live? Um, uh, all these kinds of things can come in a, a distant second. And it's not that they don't have an effect, you know, uh, it, it's a good idea not to, you know, be too fat and it's a good idea to take some exercise and all these kind of things. But they just don't, they pale into insignificance almost by comparison with what uh, four or five um, supportive uh, friends uh, actually do for you in terms of your kind of general health and well-being and your kind of sense of life satisfaction and, and your happiness and um, even your sense of trusting is the wider community within which you live um, is affected by, you know, the, the, the number of close friendships you have. And that's partly done because the way this works seems to be through the endorphin system. So the endorphin system is part of the brain's pain management system. Um, they're chemically closely related to morphine but not, in, not addictive, unlike morphine. Um, uh, and what they do is give us this sort of sense of uh, peace and contentment and all's well with the world. They raise your pain threshold um, and raising your pain threshold actually makes you feel less depressed. It makes you feel much happier. Um, uh, uh, and uh, it 
it's that that seems to both to underpin the creation of friendships right the way across the primates and humans, but also to have these very extraordinary uh, direct health benefits uh, in many ways that are separate to uh, the, the benefits you get from having friends. Because it turns out that endorphins tune the immune system, uh, so it seems, um, and the bit of the immune system they particularly uh, tune uh, and sort of um, regulate, as it were, and get going um, uh, it, 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 are the white blood cells that whose job is mainly to target viruses, just what we need right now, yeah. and uh, also um, uh, things like cancer cells and things like that. So, you know, you, you, you somehow the endorphin system seems to benefit us through two separate ways. One is through the, the kind of sense of being immersed in a cocooning, supportive network of small network of friendships, but also this direct biochemical route, um, which you know, directly affects our, our, our ability to resist diseases. So they're remarkable things. We wouldn't want to be without them, I can tell you. But, so I guess the, the, the problem with lockdown um, is that it prevents us seeing our uh, friends, um, uh, at least the friends we, we don't live with. Uh, and I hasten to add here in this context, friends includes family. So, you know, that, that close circle of best friends on whom you rely, um, the ones I often refer to as the shoulders to cry on friends because they're the ones that will drop everything, you know, and come to your aid when your life falls apart. Uh, they're the really important ones. Um, that typically includes, you know, two friends in the proper sense and two close family members, and, you know, perhaps an odd one to, to, to make up uh, the, the typical five. Um, and of course, you live with some of those very likely. Um, and therefore, you know, those relationships are not going to be affected. But the ones that are probably going to be more seriously affected are the sort of friends that lie further out in your friendship solar system, if you like, in, in the second, third and fourth layers of your uh, friendship solar system. Because those are very dependent on how much time you invest in them. Uh, that, you know, if, if you don't see somebody for a couple of months, that friendship quality starts to slide downhill. The emotional quality of the relationship kind of weakens slowly but inevitably. And eventually, if it goes on for long enough, you know, and long enough means a couple of years of not seeing somebody. A good friend, you know, not your best friend, but a good friend can slide from being a good friend to being just an acquaintance. Some, somebody I did a lot of stuff with many years ago, but I haven't seen for ages. And it's those friendships in particular that will kind of be weakened um, to the point where um, probably it takes about six months before it's serious in those small, but when you do meet up again, you're kind of not sure where you both stand anymore. Have they found some new friend uh, because you've not taken the trouble to see them or, you know, you kind of have to start renegotiating your relationship all over again. Um, uh, but that's okay. I mean, actually, you know, that happens all the time anyway, you know, with friendships. It doesn't happen with family relationships. 
for better or for worse, we're stuck with them. Um, and you can't do much about it. But friendships are much more volatile in that sense and come and go, um, kind of over a period of time anyway. So this is sort of part of that natural turnover that you would get. And usually, you know, if you, if somebody slips from being a good friend to being, well, just a friend, uh, it's because you've found somebody else who's even more interesting and you want to devote more time to, and that, that's what causes an old friendship perhaps to decay in that sense. Um, so that being so, you know, I think what we can expect to see um, when we're let out of, uh, of school again um, and allowed to sort of uh, go and do all the usual social things we used to do uh, sort of in restaurants and pubs and whatever that you know, was your favourite um, uh, hobby and activity, then I think we'll see a kind of rebound effect in which people make big efforts to see those friendships which they think might be on the decline, just to sort of try and repair the damage. We know that happens anyway, because we've, we've seen it in um, uh, phone call patterns. So here we're dealing with huge numbers of um, um, uh, mobile phone subscribers, uh, it, you know, sort of six million people, I think our sample was based on, um, billions of phone calls. And, and what was really extraordinary to see was if somebody didn't call a particular friend uh, as often as they normally would, let's say every couple of weeks, you give them a, give them a call. Um, and for some reason you were away or maybe you were in hospital or whatever, um, uh, and you didn't phone them perhaps for three or four weeks, then the next phone call to them was almost twice as long, right? This is the rebound effect. You're kind of going, oh, you know, terribly sorry. Without saying this, you're kind of saying terribly sorry. I'm papering over the cracks here. <laughs> um, I haven't really forgotten you. Um, so, and I think we'll see those kind of rebound effects. So we shouldn't feel too too nervous about going back out into our, you know, getting back into our social social circles. And if there is a, a, a sort of slight awkwardness when we do come back together, then that's only natural and that will quickly dissipate and we'll soon be, you know, back into our, the bosom of our friendships very quickly. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, because we're so social, you know, people will want to go out and kind of meet up again. And, and you know, if, if, you, if one or two of your friendships have kind of faded a little bit, and it's sort of, they've just been on that edge where you're kind of thinking, well, you know, they're getting a bit annoying, really. Perhaps I, I won't see them quite as often. You know, this is the push that makes the shove um, to push them over the edge completely. In which case you do what we, we do anyway under those circumstances. You go back into those kind of places where you find friends, where you've always found friends. So that's going to depend on your age and, uh, and, and so on, um, and perhaps personality, but, you know, you make a bit more of an effort to, 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 to go out with groups of people, go clubbing or whatever it is, mm. uh, rambling in the hills or, you know, whatever your particular preference is, uh, it, in order to get into those, to fill those, those holes. So, mm. you know, it's not going to be, 
a disaster by any means, at least mm-hmm. for the kind of younger generations, I don't think. What do you, um, you know, because friendship is so important, what what do you say to somebody who, who might struggle with forming friendships easily or perhaps are quite shy or, or quite introverted? So although the typical size on average of a person's social network, including family as well, extended family as well as friends, is about 150 people. Um, if you look at uh, the sort of range of uh, values you get across the population as a whole, it kind of varies from about 100 to about 250 people. And that difference really reflects introverts versus extroverts. So the extroverts like to get out and kind of social butterfly, if you like, and their kind of innate social confidence allows them to do that and, uh, and it works well for them. Um, the introverts are kind of the opposite end of the scale. They're a bit risk averse because they're very, you know, we're all conscious that if you don't invest in a friendship, that friendship won't come to your, they won't drop everything to come to your help when you really need them. And that's what you're kind of uh, worried about. So introverts tend to be a bit more kind of risk averse on that and prefer to give more time to fewer friends so as to make sure their friendships work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, because they give more time to their friendships, their friendships will be stronger anyway. Paradoxically, it's probably the extroverts who will find their Struggle. social <laughs> networks and their friendships more kind of disturbed <laughs> by lockdown than the introverts, because the introverts have spent all these years really building and building and building these close friendships that they have, and to the point where they're so solid it would take, you know, a nuclear bomb practically to <laughs> cause them to break asunder. Whereas extroverts don't have such strong friendships on the whole, and therefore their friendships are probably much more susceptible to kind of not being seen. They just drift away much more quickly. Mm. So I, 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 I'm just, you know, fulfilling my own uh, um, uh, what's it as an introvert and saying, no, we'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, yeah. It will be fine. Um, when you, when you look at so maybe a hundred years from now, um, you know, maybe sort of taking COVID out of it perhaps, but you know, what, what do you think our social lives might look like a hundred years from now, uh, particularly with, um, the growing use of social media and our love affair of screens and, you know, perhaps wanting to put up sort of barriers between ourselves and other people. Do you think that we'll be more social, less social, the same? I think all else equal, the answer would be, it's going to be exactly as it is now, which is exactly as it has been for the last half million years, probably. Um, that, <clears throat> that our social world is small scale, it's really quite intense, um, it's very supportive on the whole and provides that kind of cocooning for you that allows you to cope with all the you know, exigencies of life, everything that life throws at you, um, uh, it help, helps you sort of get through that. And, and that's how it's always been and how it always will be and it's always dependent always has been always will be dependent on you investing time 
in uh, these friends in particular. Um, now, uh, here we are suddenly, we've arrived in 2007 or whenever it was that Facebook arrived on the scene and we're in a slightly different game because there are all these other ways of contacting people. And of course, then there's all the other things you can be doing on your smartphone that have nothing to do with social life at all, like checking your news feeds and all the other kinds of things that people um, constantly seem to like to look up. Now, it, certainly from our research, uh, it really seems that digital media, and this includes things like the telephone, haven't really changed very much at all the nature of our social world. And they function, the media themselves function very much in the same way that face-to-face -face interactions would do. So we, we contact people on Facebook, that say the named posts, or we phone them, uh, or we text them with exactly the same frequency as we contact them in real life. Right. So one, one medium is substituting quite well for the other. The only tricky bit is that the, most of these digital media, including the telephone, are perceived as not being as satisfying as face-to-face -face encounters. So video embedded digital media, Skype, Zoom, and the like, are viewed as not bad, but they're still not in the same league as face-to-face uh, encounters. There's something special about being able to sit up on opposite sides of a table and stare into the whites of somebody's eyes and reach across the table and pat them on the shoulder or give them a hug, whatever it is that you do uh, when you're out with them, which we're doing all the time, all these kind of little, little actions, as it were, uh, the sort of um, groundswell of how we're building friendships. Uh, and the problem is we just cannot do those kind of things uh, in any of the digital media. It just doesn't work. Um, they're kind of okay, but they're okay in the sense of sticking plasters. Um, they slow down the rate of decay of relationships. But in the end, you just have to be able to get together face-to-face -to -face, um, once in a while to keep that relationship going. So I think then... This raises the issue, raises kind of two issues in, in a way with me. One is the fact that these kind of social and cognitive skills we use to build relationships are very, very sophisticated and very complex. They're the skills of diplomacy, really, um, and the, the skills of compromise. And we have to learn them in the sandpit of life. I mean, quite literally in the sandpit of life. Uh, and it takes a very long time. The current estimates are that you don't become fully adult socially until about your mid-20s. And you can see this if you look at what's going on in the brain, right? Uh, until about the mid-20s, when you're trying to figure out the meaning of some social cue, a smile or a scowl or whatever it might be. It's all being done up here. You're cranking away at it, trying to figure out, you know, what is, what is the person intending to, uh, to say to me here? And particularly so with language, which is kind of very clunky. Language is much more clunky than we often think. You know, the same, same words pronounced in a different way can turn out to mean quite the opposite. You know, <clears throat> thanks very much. That's wonderful. <laughs> 
Thanks very much. You know, <laughs> you let me down again. <laughs> um, so you know, it's, it's all these kind of cues, the smiles and the facial cues and stuff, body language that's wrapped around the language that becomes important that we have to use and we have to kind of match all these up. And it just takes a very, very long time to do that. But, you know, if you look at people post about the mid-20s, instead of cranking away up here, when they're shown these kind of cues, it's all being kind of automated and put downstairs. It doesn't mean to say they're any better at it, but they 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 don't have to spend so much time <laughs> thinking through what's going on. So that long involved process of kind of fine tuning these skills, and it, 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 the, the way I kind of describe it really is, you know, your evolutionary bio inheritance, your biology, genes or what have you, have given you a big computer called the brain. But actually, it doesn't have a lot of software in it. It has a certain amount that provides the guidelines. But a lot of these social world skills are so complex because the social world is so complex. The most complex thing in the universe. Professor Cox, my apologies, but it is <laughs> a long way compared with the physics of the universe. Um, and that's because it's so unpredictable. Um, that we need these huge amount of practice and, and experience to be able to handle it. And if you don't get that, years and so on, you're not going to end up with the kinds of social skills that will allow you to have many friends, a large social network. So the risk is if your childhood is spent online, where you can just pull the plug on somebody if you don't like what they do, instead of being forced to sort of sort it, you know, in the, in the sandpit of life, somebody kicks sand in your face. Uh, you just got to find a way to deal with it in some form, right? And you learn the skills of kind of compromise and diplomacy and, and, and getting around uh, these aggravations, as it were, uh, and sorting it out. And the problem with the digital world is you don't have to do that. You can just you know, switch, switch it off or defriend them or something like that. And therefore, you're not learning these very complex skills of compromise. Um, and as a result of that, you know, your social world is going to sort of paradoxically, contrary to what Facebook promised us, <laughs> we may end up less socially, um, uh, with, a, with a smaller social world um, uh, by dint of spending our lives online. So the difficulty, however, is we simply won't know if this is true or not for a generation. Mm. Um, and it's a big risk, mm. um, but the, but that that kind of whole issue of uh, being distracted from the social environment, and you can see people doing it all the time. You know, the classic case is you've got a, you know go to a restaurant, you know, fourteenth of February, everybody's out for their uh, <laughs> for their romantic partners for a romantic dinner. You know, and then they're all sitting in couples at the various tables and they're all on their, their smartphones and you go, hang on a minute, <laughs> that's not the point. Checking your news feeds and your emails and stuff. You're supposed to be talking do you <laughs> to think your best coming, beloved here. So do you think <laughs> coming, building that relationship. So, Yeah. Do you think coming out of the last year will have an impact on how much we value face-to-face -face interaction or will we quickly forget this past year and, and slip back into old and bad habits? 
I think actually there's there's two um, uh, aspects of hopefulness in all this. Uh, one is we'll forget about it very soon. Right? People forgot about the Spanish flu quite quickly. The Spanish flu was much, much worse. I mean, that was very, very serious. Not least because we had no idea how to treat it. Medicine, you know, in the last century, medicine's come on hugely so we can... <clears throat> you know, treat people and, and pull them through these, these kind of difficult diseases. Um, so it was very, very frightening, the Spanish flu, for everybody. They, they behaved exactly as we are now, trying to avoid, you know, being coughed and sneezed on by other people and so on. Um, but within a few years, they'd forgotten all about it. Um, and the other, uh, and so the same will happen. Um, and hopefully we won't get another serious one for, you know, most of our lifetimes and, uh, um, before we get another really bad one. Um, but uh, at the same time, if you look back at what happened with the Spanish flu, uh, immediately afterwards, you had the Roaring Twenties. Right? Spanish flu really ended in 1920. The beginning of the 1920s, suddenly everybody went out partying like crazy. Right? The Roaring Twenties were, well, like a giant world party, it was extraordinary. Um, uh, nothing had been seen like it before. So I think, you know, that's the pressure to kind of go and meet up again with anybody, humans, you know, real living in the flesh humans. Yeah. And we will just do that. And, um, and you may meet new people, you may meet new exciting friends or new, you know, prospective romantic partners, who knows? Who knows? Um, that's very neat. It brings me neatly onto our sort of next and final section, which is um, all about alcohol, <laughs> which is, um, you know, this 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 notion, as you've written about, that that alcohol as a social lubricant is, in fact, the secret to humanity's <laughs> su success. Um, you know, looking ahead to perhaps, you know, the next the second Roaring Twenties, uh, but with our changing relationship to alcohol with you know, up to 40% of the Gen Z uh, cohort claiming to not drink alcohol, not be interested in alcohol. What, what does this, do you think, tell us about how we use alcohol or how we uh, socialise in the future, perhaps without it? Um, well, I, I think the answer here is you have to remember what alcohol uh, is actually doing in this context. And, and what it's doing in this context is exactly the same as a whole suite of other things we do to build, in the first instance, our friendships, but in the wider context to build our communities. And this goes back to um, uh, uh, the endorphins, um, uh, in our brains, it's uh, and the, the fact that as all primates do, all monkeys and apes do, we create friendships by flooding the brain with endorphins in the context of doing something with somebody else. Now, for primates, that social grooming and the stroking of the skin that goes on with the fur yeah. uh, when they're sort of parting the fur to 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 uh, leaf through it triggers a very specialized set of neurons which goes straight into the brain and trigger the endorphin system. That's all they do, right? Now, we have those neurons. They're there. That's why we do so much stroking and patting and hugging and stuff uh, at the 
at the best of times with our friends. Um, it's triggering that same system, but that same system is very limited. And in the course of our evolutionary history, we've had to find other ways of increasing the number of people we can groom with, if you like, at the same time. Because the problem with only do it with one person at a time. If you don't believe me, uh, when we're allowed to go back to the cinema, try cuddling with two people in the back row of the cinema together. And I give you 10 minutes maximum before one of them will walk out <laughs> because they'll say, you've not been paying enough attention to me. Right? It, it, the whole issue with these kind of physical touch-based mechanisms is their intimacy. You can only do it one-on-one. -on -one. So to increase the size of our social groups, what our ancestors in effect had to do was find other ways of triggering the same system that didn't require you to physically contact somebody, physically touch somebody. And the way we did it was sort of introducing a series of behaviors. Most of these are cultural, but it began with laughter. Laughter is extremely good at triggering the endorphin system. That's why you feel really good after uh, uh, going to a stand-up um, session and you do a lot of laughing and you come out, the world is wonderful. Right? Um, singing, dancing, uh, even the rituals of religion, um, uh, feasting, so eating socially together, eating triggers the endorphin system extremely well. Drinking alcohol in particular seems to trigger the endorphin system extremely well. Uh, telling emotional sub-stories um, you know, in the Shakespearean tragedies sense, <laughs> you know, these great crises that have afflicted poor Jim or whatever it is, um, uh, these all uh, tweak the heartstrings and get the endorphins rolling like crazy. And you, when that happens, you feel very bonded to the person you do it with. It doesn't affect your relationships to friends who aren't there on the moment, but with the per person who's there, even if they're a strong friend, singing especially, singing is amazing, was referred to singing as the icebreaker effect because you can quite literally put a group of strangers together, get them to sort of sing round the campfire community songs for an hour, and they'll come out of that feeling they've known each other forever. Um, wow. It's amazing. Um, and, and that's just the effect of the endorphins. And it, it kind of works pretty much the same with, with all these other behaviors you use. So alcohol is just one of the ways we found of triggering the system. Um, and it's clear eating does the same, uh, but it, what's particularly good with eating things are those kind of slightly spicy foods because they hit the endorphin system very hard. <coughs> and it, it, it's, especially if there's a sort of a, 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 that kind of, all those kind of spices we have are actually poisons. <laughs> all the spices we love, peppers, <laughs> uh, chili, and, uh, and sort of most of the herbs and spices are actually poisons that plants put in there to protect themselves from being eaten. Um, and providing you only have a little bit of it, you know, it just tweaks the system, uh, tweaks the endorphin system very nicely, I think. So, so you know, um, uh, good, hot, spicy sorts of things or those kind of strong, herby, um, uh, kind of tastes um, seem to treat the, the, the endorphin system very nicely. So they're just as good as substitutes. So things like coffee, you know. 
yeah coffee so things that are bitter as well also would would have a similar effect yeah any of that and they're bitter because of the poisons that the plant puts in to stop you know their uh, leaves or their um, fruits being eaten before they've had time you know to to germinate seed and germinate properly Mm. Um, um, uh, plants plants don't want you to eat them or their products until their products are ready uh, to germinate nicely and sometimes that requires going through somebody's stomach um, that happens with a lot of plants that have to be eaten by something and and, the, and then you know when when they come out the other end they're they're all nicely ready to germinate mm. um, uh, but but most of those uh, chemicals that they put in um, uh, have that kind of bitter um, um, chili um, uh, kind of taste to us but it actually kind of gives you that kind of bit of a kick uh, and part of that kick is coming from the endorphin system being triggered and i think we, when we spoke last time um you know uh, linked to bitterness in fact because bitterness also stimulates digestion and the the feeling of like digesting food in company there's something quite soothing and bonding about you know the feeling that we get after sitting around eating or feasting you know all evening Eating together um, really does trigger the endorphin system. And it's because eating generally, even if you're not eating anything kind of spicy, um, it, it, it triggers the endorphin system directly in two ways. One is simply by the heat generated by d- digestion. Uh, that seems to do the trick. Uh, but in addition to that, that sense of fullness that you get of repletion particularly after a big meal you know sort of a big celebratory meal sort of five courses uh, uh, and so on uh, and you end up feeling completely stuffed at the end of it that that distension of the stomach itself is will trigger the endorphin system um you know, and if you add to that the kind of spicy elements too herbs and spicy element um, it, it allows the endorphin system to, to really be um, tickled very strongly, if you like. And that's what creates a sense of relaxation of, you know, this is wonderful and you're my best buddy and all these kind of things that happen when, when we have, have those kind of social meals together, not a, a rushed sandwich at your desk. You know, you've got, it doesn't work if you don't do these social bonding behaviors with other people. I mean, you might get a bit of a, a bit of a kick, but somehow if you do it with somebody else, laughter, singing, dancing, eating, drinking, if you do it with somebody else, it seems to ramp up this endorphin effect quite dramatically. We don't have no idea why, um, but it's very demonstrable um, in all of them. And it, you know, that creates this intense bonding, whereas you'd only get kind of a feeling of, well, yes, warmth, and that's it, you know, if, if, if you did it on your own. I think I read as well somewhere that you'd written that breakfast and lunch doesn't have the same sort of impact that eating in the evening, uh, early evening, or, or just at night seems to be more, um, have more of a powerful bonding effect. It, this is very weird. Nobody seems to have noticed this, but the more I think about it, the more odd it is. 
Um, and yet the, it's obvious that we know about it, if you like, and that everything we do that's social <coughs> seems to have a much more intense feeling to it if we do it in the dark or the semi-dark than if we do it in daylight. And is that, you know, if you go to the cinema or you go to the theater or you go to see uh, a concert or a group play somewhere, you know, the lunchtime matinee just doesn't have quite the pizzazz of the evening performance. And it seems to be the same with uh, eating, uh, eating out and, you know, uh, drinking out, as it were. The, there's something about the semi-dark that just ramps these effects up and creates this sort of ambience of bondedness in, in, in a way that just doesn't happen in the harsh daylight of lunchtime. Oh, Robert, I could talk to you for hours, but um, I'm just very conscious of, of our time together. I'm going to ask you just a couple more questions, if I may. This one might be either very a big question or a very small question, and you can answer it quickly. But, um, you know, if you ask to summarize, what, what would you say makes us human? Oh, I think, I think undoubtedly it's our intense sociality, as it were. Um, the fact that we can handle really quite, by primate standards, really quite large groups. <coughs> uh, I hasten to add, that doesn't mean to say we can handle uh, nation-sized or even planet-sized groups very well. Um, uh, but the sort of standard size of our social groups, which is effectively village size, that really is quite remarkable. And that's you know, unique in, in, in the animal kingdom. Um, you know, okay, there are ants and bees live in, you know, hives with millions of, of, of members, but that's all done chemically. They don't think animals, which essentially means the birds and the mammals. Um, <clears throat> thinking, the, the capacity to think through and be very flexible in how we handle this complex social world it reaches such a height in humans compared to the other species that it's actually quite remarkable. Mm. Wow. <coughs> so just finally, Robin, questions we ask everybody, not related to anything that we've spoken about really, um, perhaps maybe the last one, but um, what would you say makes you happiest? Oh, company, I would say. Definitely company. Um, I, 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 I'm an introverted writer. An introverted writer, writers, in some sense, is to sit in the corner of the pub and watch people. Uh, but being able to sit in the corner and watch people with some friends as well, you know, that's perfection. I, I, I think I'd be worried if you, if you studied social bonding and yet you really weren't <laughs> interested in being social. <laughs> what is this bonding stuff? Yeah. <laughs> that stuff. Um, what would you say you are most proud of? It, 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 in, in the end, I suppose it has to, to be what I do for a living and having figured out some of these really complicated jigsaws of how the world actually works. But what, what's kind of particularly um, pleasurable about that is the fact that it is the social world, the world of our mind, because the, you know, we live inside our minds, 
within this outside social world um, is, is to be able to sort of constantly make that bridge between the two and figure out how it actually works. I'm sure we haven't, you know, done everything that, that could possibly be done. It's never possible. But in the last 15 years, uh, we really, we think, come to understand how and why social evolution, at least in the mammals generally, and then in humans in particular, has happened. And, mm. um, and that's all about Dunbar's number, really. Um, so that sort of having figured all those things out, it, it's, you know, I sometimes describe what I do as like sitting in front of an enormous jigsaw and jigsaw fanatics will know exactly what I mean. When you put that last piece in, <coughs> you spend hours and hours trying to get all the bits and pieces done on, a, on one of these big jigsaws. And that last piece just slots perfectly into to place. And you can sit back and go, aha, that was really clever. So satisfying. Um, what scares you? The future. You want to you wanna leave it at that? The digital future. <laughs> 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 yeah um and finally who would you love to be enjoying a drink for us you know a spritz but who just generally who would you love to be having a drink with right now alive or dead oh i think the people that i would normally have <laughs> oh as a particular person any Heidi. actually i think i would particularly like to be able to sit down with one of my deeper ancestors and find out more about the deep family history and how they lived uh, at the times when they did live. And of course, all of them lived a long time ago when life was much more gentle, less, less uh, fraught and uh, in, 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 you know, less rushed. And, and uh, it would be really interesting to see who they were and how they lived in those olden times. Well, Professor Robin Dunbar, this has been a fascinating hour or so. And like I said earlier, we could talk about this um, all afternoon but let's save it for when our pubs reopen and we can sit in the corner uh with a pint of something or a glass of something and uh and put the world to rights um thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today where can where can people find more information about you your work uh your books your writing oh well i think um i've got a book coming out and exactly two weeks time I think it is called Friends ah. um, uh, which is there on Amazon already well what a good, what good timing we'll have to give that a big promo push when uh, when this episode comes out um, thank you so much for taking the time and um, we look forward to reading your book and to sharing a drink with you in the future Professor Robert Darbar thank you so much thank you very much I shall look forward to that drink <laughs> <laughs>